Like most men, I tell a hundred lies a day. Yet in the pages which follow, I have tried to tell only truths, with the exception common to all works of confession, the exception which Rousseau described this way. If I have occasionally made use of some immaterial embellishments, this has been only in order to fill a gap caused by lack of memory. The gap seems larger to me than it did to Rousseau, and my use of embellishments, some of them fairly material, is not occasional, but constant. I do not often know what is memory and what invention in the ordinary detail of my narratives, but for all extraordinary detail I vouch, and for all circumstance and outcome, all turns, sequence, coincidence, and surprise. The things which are logical and undramatic, which have the trivial ring of small facts, may very well be fiction. Those which are violent and improbable, which have the brassy sound of uninhibited fiction, are all fact. Some of the trivial things are genuine too, of course, but will not be dwelt on much, like the matter of my birth, which took place, unaccompanied by portents, on September 17, 1922, making me the second of my parents' three sons. That is all, perhaps more than all, that you will need to know about my birth and infancy. There is another exception to the kind of truth I tell. I mean to make here no man's confession but my own, nor any woman's. I have put into disguise the girls and the companions who shared my youth. You could recognize none of them from my description, should you meet one now. I have no wish that they should recognize themselves. Shall I recognize myself? Yes, but with the acknowledgement that the I in any sort of autobiography, whether ten-volume memoir or bar-side anecdote, is any man's chief and continuing work of fiction. It is one of the hundred lies. We look in mirrors with fool's eyes, and the person we see there is always merrier or more melancholy, more loathsome or appealing, shorter or taller, even, than the poser whom a stranger would see if the stranger stood in the mirror's place. I am aware, then, that I recognize myself in what follows only as I would recognize my younger image in a mirror, never as the stranger standing in its place. Yet what a pleasure to come on such a mirror, to see looking out at me the youth I imagine myself to have been fifteen years ago, with the hair restored to the front of the skull and the skin smooth, with the beard lightened, trunk slimmed. What might he say to me? You're looking kind of fat, chief. I eat better than you did, I might reply. Big Sybarite, huh? No, it's... Isn't that dandy? Boy, go on cramming in that creamed chicken and steak. They'll probably make you president of the Food Society or something. Look, I live a pretty regular life, that's all. I have to to get my work done. Oh, big worker, too. Sure. How do you manage to have any nose left, keeping it to the grindstone that way? I decide to smile instead of answering. Boy, I'll bet you wear out six or seven grindstones a year that way. Probably get them from Abercrombie and Fitch. Have all kinds of fun, too, don't you? Some kinds. Look at him. Look at the big, fat, life-is-worth-living man. Hot damn, General. I think I'll go get Hal and McCaliber, and you can line the three of us up, and we'll stand here smartly at attention for about half an hour saluting you and puking. He's overexcited. Probably it's because he's just back from the war. I'm fond of him, and will make whatever excuses he needs, for, without meaning to claim that he is reckless and open, and, in spite of his jeering, gentle as absolute characteristics, 
Yet how far he exceeds my present self in all three qualities. If I am tolerant, avoid awkwardness, and am less a victim of my sensitivities, it is a poor trade, nevertheless. In making it, I tell another of my hundred daily lies. I allow myself to believe that I have gained some sort of wisdom in exchange for silliness. This is simply not true, unless wisdom is no more than a kind word for learning to make do. It is, of course, that I have learned to make do with some degree of personal happiness that makes young Quincy scoff so. For it was on a perverse quest, the intense but often exuberant pursuit of unhappiness, that my youth was spent. This you will begin to see in the second half of the book. In the first, I have no such goal. I have merely a boy's goal, to be esteemed, to be liked, to be loved.